Good to be together as always. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. If you have a, a Bible, you can open with me to Isaiah 58. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. And uh, someone on our team will come around and make sure you have one of those. You can take that with you as well if you need that. That is our gift to you. As that is happening, as the Bibles are getting passed, um, just want to begin this moment in our gathering by saying thank you to everyone for the feedback that you've given on our last conversation, which was what we talk about when we talk about giving. Apparently, you guys really like talking about money. That was a surprise to me. Um, but tons of feedback uh, about that conversation, most of it uh, overwhelmingly positive. And so uh, just really encouraging to me to hear the ways that you guys are, are working through that, wrestling through some of those questions, thinking about uh, how do we steward well the resources that uh, God has gifted uh, to us. We are um, moving on this morning, but the money conversation not completely over yet. So uh, tonight is our annual State of Discovery gathering where we spend a little bit uh, more time kind of going through the nitty-gritty of uh, our financial uh, state. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. We'll give you guys the space to ask some questions. Uh, and then we're also going to uh, talk about the future and, and what some of our hopes and dreams are moving forward as a community. So if you can be there for that, that would be really awesome uh, to uh, spend that time together. So tonight, 6 p.m. over at the downtown center, State of Discovery, uh, will be a good time uh, uh, together. All right, let's pray and then we'll dive into our next conversation here. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, this day, for your mercies, which truly are new to us every morning. Thank you that you are good, even when it doesn't feel like it. This truth um, still stands, uh, even in, in whatever we may be experiencing. And so, God, this morning as we come into this space, we know that we bring in all sorts of different things. Um, pain and questions and doubts and even great things that we are celebrating, God. We bring all of this in with us now. We lay it down before you. Uh, we release it with open hands so that we can be fully present here in this moment. To hear from you, to be sensitive to your spirit, God, would you turn our hearts to your heart Again, that we might hear your voice and then be able to respond today in whatever ways that we need to respond. Give us the courage to do that. We are so grateful for your son Jesus, for the gift of his death and his resurrection and all that that means for us. Help us to celebrate that well this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, we're going to begin here. A couple weeks ago, the New York Times published an article by a woman named Sarah Gardner. It highlighted the story of a handful of men from Southeast Asia. They are asylum seekers who are being held sort of in limbo in Louisiana right now. They started, back in October, a hunger strike. And this has been going on since the early part of October all the way up until this very moment, rejecting food and water to protest their uh, sort of state of limbo in this asylum-seeking process. Now, whatever your views may be on the immigration issue, that is a powerful statement, right? To go that long without these basic necessities. There's something about the refusal of food that sends this message of seriousness. 
Maybe the, the most famous practitioner of the hunger strike is Mahatma Gandhi. Several times he went anywhere from 3 to 21 days without food to highlight all sorts of, of causes. The inequality of the caste system to move forward the cause uh, for Indian independence from the British Empire. The total commitment and discipline involved in a hunger strike, if we're being honest, is quite jarring to us. Why would somebody do this? It feels like one of the most unnatural ways to sacrifice for a cause. Nathan Foster says it this way, my world is built on pursuing and satisfying my every need and desire. After all, I am an American, he says. When I have a headache, I take medicine. When I'm tired, I go to bed. When I'm hot, I turn on the AC. And when I'm hungry, I eat. The notion of voluntarily depriving myself of anything that is readily accessible feels ridiculous. Now, quick uh, side note here, sort of a fun fact. Nathan Foster is the son of a man named Richard Foster. Richard Foster, one of the sort of gurus of the spiritual formation movement. He wrote a book many years ago now called The Celebration of Discipline. It's become a classic. Uh, if you are interested in learning or reading more about the practices, would recommend that book very highly. Uh, but behind every Christian celebrity, if you will, there are kids that grow up with mom or dad being that guy or that woman. And, uh, and Nathan really wrestled with this for a long time. In fact, I think rebelled against it quite significantly. And he's also written a book called The Making of an Ordinary Saint. And the subtitle is great, My Journey from uh, Frustration to Joy with the Spiritual Disciplines. And it's a, it's a very good book. It's a good read, I think, no matter where you may be in your journey. But if you are sort of skeptical about this practices conversation that we are uh, journeying through over the course of this year, this would be a great place to start because, uh, again, Nathan is someone who's had to really uh, work through this in his own story. The notion of voluntarily depriving ourselves of anything that is readily accessible feels Ridiculous. Now today, we begin part two of our practices conversation. We started this uh, a month ago, um, and what we're going to do over the course of the year is we're going to highlight eight different practices or spiritual disciplines. And so we started with this practice of Sabbath, and, and when we uh, were in that conversation, I, I sort of confessed that we started there uh, partly because Sabbath is such a foundational practice, but we also started there because I felt this like sort of uh, weird pride or confidence about that particular practice. And, and now today, as we move into the second part of this, we move into the practice of fasting, and, and this is like the total opposite confession. I come in uh, confessing fear and trembling. I have no idea what I'm talking about this morning, so you're in good hands. <laughs> um, Again, this idea of depriving ourselves, it doesn't sound as fun. It feels ridiculous, especially after we've spent a month sitting with, you know, Sabbath and rest and these kinds of things. Why now talk about fasting? As I've been digging into this, though, there's so much, I think, for us to explore. And this is a practice that if we take it seriously, it will push us. And I don't know about you, but for me, I'm... I'm feeling the need to be pushed in this way. So we're going to get to this in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to review and reframe the conversation for us so that we're sort of back on the same page after spending a few weeks talking about giving. So 
uh, to, to frame this this morning, we began a month ago with the assertion that there is a story that we live by. There is a vision for the good life that animates and drives us. This story, this vision, it gives shape to our decision-making. It orients our hearts and desires. It forms us into a way of life, whether we are aware of it, whether we are conscious of it or not. Now, part of the invitation of Jesus, when he says, come, follow me, when he says, come and see what I am all about, it is, again, in part an invitation to be very intentional about what is going to form us, about what story we are going to be a part of, about what vision of the good life we are going to pursue. It's an invitation to submit our lives, our whole lives, to Jesus' vision, what he calls the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of right relationships. Now, there are all sorts of ways in which this invitation gets distorted. And I think one of the biggest distortions that we face, particularly here in a place like Davis, is, is this idea that the kingdom of heaven can be experienced simply through intellectual agreement. Now, that's certainly part of it. How we think, how our minds are shaped is certainly part of it, but it's only part of it. Jesus does not say, love God with all of your mind, period, right, and just leave it at that. No, he says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not just this sort of vertical relationship with God. He also says, love your neighbor as yourself, this horizontal relationship with other people. So our participation in the kingdom life, what we've been calling the with God life, is not just about learning some interesting things or or acquiring more knowledge. Our participation is exactly that. It is participation. Our whole lives come under the influence of Jesus, our Lord and Master. I'm reminded of this sort of whole life involvement in this story a lot when I'm playing with my son. My son, Cruz, is five years old. He's got an extremely vivid imagination. And he, he like, gets fixated on a particular story for a period of time. Over the years, it's been anything from uh, superheroes. It's currently Star Wars. Uh, He's gotten fascinated by some Bible stories like Samson, David, and Goliath. He also went through this period uh, of fascination with Tom Brady, which was heartbreaking to me uh, as his dad. But we got over that one fairly quickly. But here's what's fun about this. Cruz has not seen, you know, he hasn't seen any of these movies. You know, we've read him some stories, and he's got a glimpse of some of these characters. But for him, it's not just about, like, listening to it. He has to be in the story. He has to, you know, be Darth Vader holding the lightsaber. He has to have a slingshot and shoot it like David. He has to throw the football like Tom Brady. And none of this is about, like, you know, having the uniform or whatever. This is all sticks and blankets. It's just totally in his own head. But we are in it, man. When we're playing this, we are in that story. Anything can become part of our play as we embody these stories. Eugene Peterson writes, it's significant, I think, that in the presence of a story, we never have the feeling of being experts. 
There's too much we don't, know, we don't yet know, too many possibilities available, too much mystery and glory. Even the most sophisticated of stories tends to bring out the childlike in us, expectant, wondering, responsive, delighted. Which, of course, is why the story is the child's favorite form of speech, why it is the Holy Spirit's dominant form of revelation, and why we adults who like to pose as experts and managers of life so often prefer explanation and information. Now, this is what we are after here. We are after wonder, delight, possibility, experience, play. What does it look like to practice this way of life? Not just explanation and information. Zoe Aeneas. Life to the full, life abundant, eternal life is to be experienced. It is to be lived, not just learned about. Are you with me? Now, four foundational texts. I'm going to summarize these very quickly for us. We'll come back to these almost every single time we pick up this conversation. Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, right? We've been exploring this tension between the truth that it is God who transforms our hearts, who does this work in our life, and yet at the same time, we participate, we work it out as God works in us. Colossians 1 echoes this idea, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Christ is at work in you, and yet we strenuously contend with this energy He's given us. First Timothy 4, train yourselves to be godly. We talked about the difference between training and trying. This is not about trying to appear to be a religious person, a spiritual person who has all of their stuff together. This is about training in these ways and rhythms and practices of Jesus' way of life. And then finally, Jesus' own words, therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, puts them into practice. Now again, we begin with the practice of Sabbath, and we saw how Sabbath is a foundational discipline, how it is an act of resistance against the formation story of our culture that says you are what you do. We saw how it's a picture of shalom. Shalom, this rich uh, Old Testament Hebrew word that refers to the way God intended things to be. And then we also saw that Sabbath is a picture of grace, right? The freedom to rest and to simply be with God. And so now we turn our attention to this second practice, the practice of fasting. So two texts to guide our conversation this morning, one from the New Testament, the other from the Old. We will eventually get to that Isaiah 58 uh, passage, but let's start with Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, this is very early on in the Jesus story. At the beginning of the chapter, we read this. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. One of the great understatements in all of the Bible. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, again, early on in the story, this little scene here comes right after Jesus gets baptized and then right before his temptations. He faces these three temptations from Satan out in the wilderness there. 
At his baptism, an incredible event happens, right? He, he's being baptized by his, his friend and cousin and forerunner, John. But in that moment, the heavens open up, this dove descends upon him, and his father speaks over him, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. All right, this amazing moment of affirmation. And then for a lot of us, as we read or teach through this, we tend to jump right from that into the three temptations. And there's a lot of good reason for that, a lot going on in the temptation scene. There's connection to the Old Testament story. We see Jesus doing what Israel, what Adam was not able to do. We see Jesus quoting scripture, fighting this temptation, overcoming Satan, all kinds of great stuff going on there. But too often we skip over this little bit here. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, why does he do this? And why does this moment happen here early on in the story? What I want to show us here is that there's precedent for this. At significant moments in the story of salvation, there's been this key character who's had this moment of affirmation, this moment of fasting, and then this sort of revelation from God about what happens next. So two characters we're going to look at here for a brief moment. One of them is named Moses. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story, Moses uh, is appointed by God to lead his people, the people of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And, uh, and so Moses does this, and they end out in the wilderness. And Moses goes up on this mountain and has, again, an incredible encounter with God. God actually passes by him, reveals his glory to Moses. And then this is also the, the scene where Moses uh, receives the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. In the middle of all of that, we find out that Moses fasted for 40 days, verse 28 of Exodus 34. Now, fast forward a little bit at another significant moment in the Old Testament story. There's this prophet named Elijah. This is during the time where Israel had settled down in its land. It had become a kingdom. It had a bunch of kings. Most of them were bad. And so God would send these prophets to speak to the people, try to call them back on track. Elijah is one of these prophets. He's actually the only prophet at, at this particular moment in the story. First uh, Kings chapter 18 and 19, Elijah has this showdown with some prophets of a false god named Baal or Baal. And this worship of this false god had taken over the people of Israel, but Elijah defeats them. And then after that, he, he goes into a funk, and he's deeply depressed. And it's in this place that God meets him and cares for him in a very tender way. And he's fed multiple times by this angel. And then we read this. Elijah got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. So here we have him eating this meal that's provided by God. And then he goes for 40 days after that without food. And then in this cave... Elijah has this incredible encounter with God. And God shows up, or, or there's a couple different things that happen. There's an earthquake, and there's fire, and all this crazy stuff, a whirlwind. And it, the text says that God is not in any of those things. And then there is this still small voice 
And it's in that still small voice that God reveals his glory to Elijah. So three significant moments in the story of Scripture. The exodus from slavery, the downfall of the kingdom, the arrival of the Messiah, three pivotal characters, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And each of them has this profound experience of God's glory and affirmation. They get a glimpse of God that very few, if any other human beings, get to see. And in the middle of all of that, they fast for 40 days. After this fast, Moses will go on to deliver the terms of the covenant to God's people, lead them up to the promised land. Elijah will choose uh, this man named Elisha to be his successor, to continue on this line of prophets. And Jesus kind of combines these two things. He goes on next to choose his disciples, and then he goes up on a mountain and delivers his most important teaching, the terms of the new covenant, if you will, uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Now, interestingly enough, these are the three characters who will show up later on in the story. Jesus goes up on another mountain, and we're told that his appearance changes. This is called the transfiguration, and it's there that he has a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And they begin to talk about where Jesus' story is headed. You are going to be going to the cross, and, and, and you're going to lay your life down for the sins of the world. Now, what do we do with all of that, all right? Because there's this one sense in which we are not Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, right? There's something unique and sort of different about their experiences, and yet there is, I think, a lot here for us to see when it comes to this practice of fasting. So what we see here is the spiritual dimension of fasting. There's something about denying ourselves of this very practical reality of food, that opens us up to experiencing the presence and glory of God in a whole new and different way. Fasting can be vital to deeper relationship with God. It can prepare us for our role in the story. Now again, word of caution here. We're not these three significant characters. And, and by the way, we are not going to ask you to fast for 40 days. Okay, that's not where this is going if you're starting to get nervous about that. Also, fasting is not this sort of magical way to conjure up God's presence in our lives. But just because uh, we're looking at these massive figures who do this incredible thing, don't let that discourage you from the truth that fasting does open us up to deeper relationship with God. Now, to Isaiah 58, we're going to get a whole different sort of take on this practice, all right? Isaiah 58, this is in the Old Testament, and Isaiah is a prophet. He is speaking on behalf of God. Look at what he has to say. Again, this is God speaking through Isaiah. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Now, it sounds like there's some good things going on here, right? Humbling themselves, seeking more of God. They're doing this practice 
of fasting. And yet there's also this lament, right, that Isaiah gives voice to here. We have fasted. We have participated. We've been doing these practices, but whatever this practice is supposed to activate uh, for us, it's not doing it. Why is it not working? And look at what God has to say. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. This raises the question, can you strike each other with righteous fists? (laughs) You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? There are a couple of important warnings here for us as we engage in these practices. One, uh, I think, warning is that we can do these things to, again, appear spiritual and, and yet be completely missing that vertical spiritual dimension of the practice. But then there's this whole other part, right? God's rebuttal here is, yes, you fasted, but you've missed the point. This fast is all about you, and the fruit of this fast is fighting violence and exploitation. Not only does their fasting not lead them into right relationship with God, it's violating right relationship with each other. And this is the second, I think, important warning for us. If our practices, if our practices don't lead us to love others well, then they're worthless. If our practices don't lead us deeper into right relationship with our friends and neighbors and family, they are worthless. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? God says to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free And break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked? To clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And here's that phrase again. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. So fasting does have this deeply spiritual dimension, but it is not just about personal piety or some sort of monkish individual practice. It impacts our relationship with others. There's a social dimension to the practice of fasting. Through fasting, we should grow more connected to our families, our friends, and our neighbors. Fasting is a way to fight injustice and to create and promote shalom, the way that God intended the world to be. Fasting and other practices do not draw us out of the world, but into deeper engagement with the places where we see broken shalom, where things are not the way that God intended them to be. 
And so to lean fully into this practice, we need to hold these two ideas together. Fasting is spiritual, but it is also social. It is personal, but also communal. Now, I want to close here by uh, talking through a couple of practical things. And and there's going to be a lot more space to do this in the context of groups. And so just a reminder, we're basically introducing these ideas on Sunday morning. And then it's in groups where we go deeper with this, explore this together. We figure out what it looks like in our own uh, lives and in our own story. So if you're not in a group, just another encouragement to, to check groups out. Um, now is a great time uh, to get in as, as we begin this second practice. All right, so a couple of, of practical things. If you do some research on this, and by the way, in your worship guides, there is some uh, 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 resources that you can check out if you want to. But if you do some research on the topic of fasting, you will find that there's a little bit of a kind of a nerdy debate about what is the like technical definition of fasting. Some people will argue that the technical definition, the biblical definition of fasting is, is just about food. And so there's this category called fasting, which is where we don't eat. And then there's this category called abstaining, where we refrain from doing other things. For our purposes here, we're kind of combining those two, using it very broadly. So here's a working definition for us of this idea of fasting. It is intentionally deciding, intentionally choosing to abstain from something. It could be anything for a set period of time in order to move deeper into right relationship with God and other people. Again, we're going to be exploring this uh, much more in-depth in groups, but we are going to invite everybody to consider some sort of fast for the season of Lent. If you're not familiar with the idea of Lent, Lent is a season observed in the church calendar every year, and it's a season of anticipation and preparation, much like Advent is a season of anticipation and preparation for Christmas. Lent is about getting ready for Easter. It typically begins on Ash Wednesday and then runs through Good Friday. It begins this year on February 26th. And by the way, we will be having another uh, joint service with our friends at Christ the Redeemer at our downtown center on Ash Wednesday. So if you've never been a part of an Ash Wednesday service, we'd love to invite you to join us uh, on that evening. Now, a couple of, of Uh, other things that I want to just add to this conversation that we will, again, continue to explore in groups. Fasting is a little bit different than some of the other practices. And in fact, I would say the other practices that we will engage over the course of this year are all meant to be fairly regular and rhythmic. Daily reading, daily prayer, weekly Sabbath, monthly solitude, however you organize that in your own life, these things become rhythms become regular patterns become habits they just become part of the way that we live now for some of us here fasting might take that same kind of texture where we do this on a regular basis maybe you skip lunch once a week maybe you fast from something on you know the first monday of the month whatever that might look like for you But back to the example of Jesus and Elijah and Moses, those 40-day fasts were a one-time thing. And for us, fasting might simply be a seasonal or occasional practice. It's not necessarily intended to be as, as rhythmic and regular as some of the other ones. 
So a couple questions I want to tackle here are, when do we fast, and why would we want to engage in a fast? So first, we fast for intimacy. The idea is that by abstaining from something, a necessity or a distraction, we free ourselves up. We open ourselves up to grow in awareness of God, to grow in dependence on God. I've heard some people define fasting this way. Fasting is feasting on God. Fasting is feasting on God. Again, by saying no to something, we create more space to focus on God. Instead of eating, we pray. Instead of flipping through Instagram, we read scripture. Instead of watching TV, we spend time in reflection. And in doing so, we create space for intimacy. If you are sensing that you have for some reason uh, uh, pulled away or, or just don't feel the presence of God maybe in a way that you did in an earlier stage in your journey, a fast can be a great way to reconnect uh, in this uh, intimate place with God. We may also fast for discernment, okay? A lot of us face big decisions in our lives. What classes will I take next quarter? What am I going to do after I graduate? Should I ask this person to marry me? Is it time to start a family? Should I be looking for a new job? Is it time to retire? How can I best serve during this stage of my life? These big questions go on and on. And for thousands of years, Jesus' followers have fasted as they faced these big types of decisions. By not eating, by abstaining from other distractions, they create space to pray and to listen and to hear from God regarding which direction they should go with this significant decision. Now, people who fast will experience uh, a period of like detox. And this sort of moment in the fast can be a bit painful. But if you maintain that fast, what what people tend to experience is that by pushing through that, on the other side of that discomfort comes this great clarity. And when we are discerning, when we're trying to make big decisions, we crave clarity. Now to get real practical for a moment, if you have never fasted, especially from food, uh, it would be wise to start slow. (laughs) And there are a lot of great resources uh, for this. And in your worship guide, there's a link to um, renovari.org. If you go there and do a little search for the topic of fasting, you'll get all kinds of stuff uh, on this, including real practical ways to begin the practice of fasting if you've never done it before. So if you haven't done this before, don't try to go like four or five days or something like that. You know, Maybe skip one meal or try a one-day fast where you're still drinking Gatorade or something like that. But uh, I bring this up to simply say start small. Um, But there will be a moment, however big or small the fast is, there will be a moment where you go, why did I do this? I did a, a, many years ago, I used to work at Starbucks, and I did a a Lenten fast where I gave up caffeine, and it was brutal, because uh, not only am I, like, going through this, like, shaky detox from caffeine, I'm also working in Starbucks, and it's just like, why did I, why did I do this? (laughs) But my, my encouragement to you is, again, if you can push through that, there will be great clarity on the other side of that. Finally, we also fast for justice. 
We may not go on a Gandhi-like hunger strike, but there is so much that we consume, that we use, oftentimes unthinkingly, that can have a negative impact on our neighbors. And if you're, uh, this is new to you, if you're unfamiliar with some of these things, again, a couple of resources that I would recommend, the Not For Sale Campaign and International Justice Mission, uh, both have great resources on their webpages about our consumer habits and, and places where we spend money can help us really understand the impact of some of those decisions. Now, a couple of simple suggestions, but there'll be a lot more time, again, to explore this in, in groups. One suggestion would be this. If you do fast from food, if you decide to give up a meal, think about using that food that you would have eaten and sharing it with someone in need, sharing it with a homeless neighbor or someone who you see often or know in your life who could use that meal. Second very simple suggestion would be this, to just kind of look at your budget and think through what are things that I spend money on regularly that I could give up for a period of time. And then give that up for this Lenten season and use that money to invest in a cause or a person or an organization that is doing good work in the world, that is bringing shalom to some part of our broken world. All sorts of things that we can do. Just want to give you a couple of ideas there to kind of get the wheels turning. All sorts of things we could do. Our small fast may not feel like it's going to change a whole lot, but collectively these decisions can have tremendous impact. Now again, remember, you are not Moses or Elijah or Jesus. But we can respond to this invitation, this invitation to explore a practice that has all kinds of implications for our relationship with God and with others. This is a practice that if we engage with it, can lead to affirmation, clarity, a deeper awareness of God's glory and grace and presence. It can lead to greater shalom and healing and restoration in the world. And I don't know about you, but I want in on that. Let's pray. Father, I, I just simply confess that this... Um, this practice makes me uncomfortable. And I, as I've been sitting with it and thinking about it and thinking about this morning, it's already pushing me in some ways. And so, God, I just, I just begin with that, that sort of confession naming that this may be an intimidating thing for many of us in this room. And yet, God, we all desire deeper intimacy with you. We want to know you more. We want to know you in new ways. And if that means saying no to something so that we can be more open and available to your presence, work, leading in our life, we commit to doing that this morning. Father, thank you for these moments in the story where you have led people from slavery to freedom, where you have spoken truth and brought light into dark places, and then, of course, for sending Jesus to be with us, to walk among us, to uh, tell us about the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like to live in that kingdom. 
And then, Father, thank you for the gift that is his death in our place on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, overcoming our sin, the separation between us, that we might be in right relationship with you. And then also grow in right relationship with each other as we share this good news with our world. Father, help us to join you in that. If, it, uh, if fasting is part of that, may we uh, uh, commit to doing this practice together to see what happens on the other side of this. To see new ways in which you are at work in our lives individually and collectively to be a part of restoring shalom to our broken world. So, Father, as we spend some time this morning reflecting and responding to this, may this be grounded in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And may our response be not about appearing spiritual or um, playing the game, but may it be about genuinely seeking a deeper awareness of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.